0: 2 of the Floss for Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, Patrick and I are interviewing Laurent Cormier, a research associate in the field of composite materials at the Mechanical Engineering Department of the Ecole de Technologie Superieure in Montreal. Hi, Laurent. Could you please introduce yourself and talk to us about your research, uh, subject, and interest?
1: Yes. Uh, first, thanks for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, Pleasure to meet you, Patrick, Uh, and you too, David. Uh, About my research, I've been involved in uh, mechanical engineering research since around two two thousand and seven. Yeah, when I started my masters here at the École de Technologie Supérieure, I've since then I've mainly studied uh, mechanics of composite materials. uh, Tested lots of materials and uh, mainly done characterization. Uh, my main topic has been the uh, effect of temperature and loading rate on the fatigue of uh, glass epoxy composites for the wind energy uh, sector. So uh, the glass epoxy composite is the main component of wind turbine blades. And here in Canada, we have a, a quite a typical uh, climate for operating wind turbines. So we wanted to know if there was a, an important effect to be expected with our cold winters. So main that's, this has been my main subject. I've been doing a lot of low-temperature tests, fatigue tests, and uh, tried to model uh, and predict the outcome of uh, the effect of temperature and loading frequency on, on those composite materials. So this was part of uh, the WestNet program, which is a wind energy strategic network, which was founded by the NSERC which is the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. And it was uh, actually part of a much broader broader project, which was also evaluating all the aspects of uh, socioeconomics and uh, distribution of power uh, across the Canadian landscape and also energy production with our uh, a typical landscape and uh, climate for wind energy product, production. So, well, this has been the subject of my, both my master's and PhD actually at TTS. So, and I've just done, I, I've just been done with my PhD uh, last semester. So, woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> Congratulations for your PhD. <laughs> yeah, thanks.
0: Any results you? You want to share with us?
1: Well, from my side, I think uh, the, the, the most interesting result I had was uh, I've been able to uh, build a tool for predicting based on static tests at various temperature and uh, a single set of fatigue tests at ambient temperature. I've been able to propose a model that would allow for predicting uh, the fatigue behavior at different temperatures. So uh, th- I think that's been the, the the greatest achievement of my of my work but uh also i, I i've published on uh, some uh more more descriptive model of uh like viscous behavior of composites and uh i think the the, the maybe the most noteworthy uh, result that's not like a, a formula or a model is that uh contrary to expectation uh viscous effects uh, reappear at low temperature because in, in polymers there are uh, many uh, transition temperatures. The most, the better known is the glass transition, but there are also low temperature trans- transitions. And my work has demonstrated that under fatigue loading, some uh, viscous effects are also shown at these uh, low temperature transitions, and these can affect the uh, behavior of the material over long terms
0: for our listeners in that are uh, not in uh, mechanical engineering could you s- slightly describe what is fatigue loading yeah of course uh,
1: fatigue basically is just uh, the damage that is done to a material by a repeated loading and if you're someone who gets easily bored and tend to play with paperclip instead of do- doodling in your classes then probably you've experienced fatigue by yourself because by bending and unbending and rebending that paperclip it eventually failed and that was just a fatigue failure so that's uh, the, the the main example that the one that we often uh, often present in uh, in metals basically like in your paperclip you have one crack that just grows every time you bend the material In composites there's a a big difference is that composites are basically uh, multiple materials that are put together in one solid form and each of these materials they behave differently in fatigue so you're gonna have multiple little damages that just grow up and eventually these coalesce and just uh, generally degrade the materials performance so Contrary to uh, to metals, for compo- in metals you can just track the growth of a crack, and you're going to have a good idea of how long you still have on a, on a metallic part. Uh, but in composites, it's much harder because the damages are located in multiple sites. It's it, it gets pretty hard to to track the damage and predict the residual lifetime of a part. So you need to have some uh, theoretical models to to have a, a, a safe prediction in advance yeah
0: do you track the damage uh during the usage of the part or do you the, the, mean the, the composite material or do you uh, only predict the life over w- without tracking the the health of the the composite part Okay,
1: in in my specific application, uh, there was no health monitoring of the part. Okay, so there are ways. Uh, some people just uh, put uh, very sensitive microphones on the parts, and when every time a, a small cracks or a fiber breaks or anything, you can hear the the event uh, with the microphone and register it, and this can be a, a way to monitor the damage evolution in your part. Uh, as for my work, there was some photographic and video uh, sequences of uh, failing samples, but there was no formal tracking of the damage. Yeah.
2: Okay, sounds quite interesting. Thanks for sharing your research subject. And yeah, previous you mentioned a tool you used in your research. Can you be a little bit more specific with software or programming language you were using to develop this tool?
1: Yeah, uh actually for my work I've been using several uh programs and uh, programming languages in terms of programming language there was one that I think is a, a go-to programming language for many scientists it's Python. Python is uh very versatile so and uh, I've used it a, a lot for general data uh treatment and uh modeling. So uh, I think that's Maybe not the greatest tool ever, but a very, very nice tool to have uh, for scientists. Uh, in Python, there are many many packages that uh, that that can be useful. In my particular uh, case, I used uh, SciPy, of course, a lot, a lot not plusly for uh, just graphing things, and uh, SymPy also, also for uh, symbolic calculations. So, but there are uh, data uh, data treatment like. I'm aware of Panda Pandas, <laughs> which is a, a library for Python for those people working with large data set, data sets. Uh, it can be a, a great tool for, uh, data, uh, treatment myself. My data sets were too small, so I've, I've looked at it, but it was not worth, uh, worth it for me to, to, to use it. But, uh, uh, I have uh, fellow researchers in the lab who used it with, uh, and were very happy with it. <laughs> uh, so that's in terms of programming language. That's the main I've used. Uh, in terms of uh, other open or libre uh, programs, I think in research one of the first thing you know you you have to do is manage your reference. So I've I've uh, for that I've used Jabref. Uh, since almost day one, uh, <clears throat> for me it was it was great because it, it was cross-platform. So uh, JabRef, Jabref at the time was uh, was uh, had a great advantage on that. I I used both Ubuntu computer and uh, Windows computer, and I could just manage my reference library with the same program. So that was great. Uh, for statistics, I've used R. In my case, was uh, mainly for rank order st- statistics, so testing how statistical model fits uh, my own data. So, uh, Gumpers model, Weibull model, uh, lognormal were the the ones that I used most. And uh, R was uh, very very easy to uh, to to learn for these basic uh, manipulation of of data. So, rank order statistics uh, R is great for that. And uh, one that maybe a lot of people know also is uh, latex latex uh, for everything that's publishing i'd say so articles conference articles and uh, even uh, presentations Uh, i've made almost all of them with latex but this came a bit later i'd say uh, maybe i started with latex i started my master's around Two thousand seven, if I recall correctly, and maybe more two thousand ten for LaTeX. Yeah, uh, a part of that. I, I actually, I'm <laughs> as a user, I, I I really enjoy the the uh, the uh, availability of all these open source materials. So even uh, for for me. Uh, the quality of illustrations in my publication also is uh, is important, so uh, I've also been uh, using uh, open source applications for uh, image manipulation. So for vector graphics, uh, I quite an, uh, I quite like uh, Inkscape. Inksqu- it's quite good because uh, as a vector graphic uh, software. Uh, well, you can have you, you can produce really high quality images for your for your research, but also if you want to re- reuse one of your output from uh, Python uh, matplotlib and you saved it as a vector graphic, uh, let's say you want to make a presentation and reuse a graph from an article. So often in an article, the, the graph is going to be uh, way too dense for uh, for using it on uh, on screen. So you can just re-edit it from uh, from Inkscape and keep a high quality image instead of going back to uh, through your Python script and changing parameters and everything. So that's if you want to remove points or uh, remove noise from the image, it's uh, it's great.
2: Okay. Sounds you used a lot of free and Libre Open Source software for your research, and yeah, we like to know. Why do you decide to use this Floss software or packages in your research? Was it for more a practical reason because it's free and you do not have to pay or your institute was not offering other softwares? Or is it more a philosophical reason you have behind this usage?
1: Well, uh, I'd say it's both. I mean, at DTS, we have... Uh, a great software offering. Uh, for we we have paid versions of of many sof- softwares that have, are available, and uh, uh, I think that's great. But also, uh, I think that philosophically, uh, being able to know, even if it's not on a daily basis, that you are going to dig in the code and everything to to know what's going on behind the the scene in your computer, uh, just knowing that you can, that you can do is is a uh, great thing for for open source contrary to proprietary files where uh, you have very little, if any, idea of what's going on. So, philosophically, I think it's great uh, also just the availability I mean if if there's anything I've been doing most of my work on my own computer for some it's not they just can't do that they work on big projects with centralized information and everything so maybe for them having their uh, the softwares uh, open software available uh, at any time maybe it's not as great as an advantage, but for me, I was working on my own machine. I I had uh, all administrative rights, so uh, just installing a, a software as I needed it. And one thing I really like about open source is that communities are, are just amazing. There are so much information that that you can find on, uh, on the internet and from other users, and people are eager to share their experience. And so so it's. Much easier, I find, to uh, find solutions to your problems with open source software than in commercial where, well, help is behind a paywall also. So, uh, well, uh, availability, I think, and uh, the the communities, uh, these are the main drivers for me.
0: Uh, speaking of the community, are you an active member of the community of the Flus, or you're only ups- external observer? Do you contribute to it? Do you s- have you any pro- programs and patches? Participated in the forums, giving given support to other users.
1: I've. I've been mainly external. I have to admit, I've uh, <laughs> I've benefited more from <laughs> open source software, and the community than I've I've given back. Uh, I've always promi- promised myself to, to get more involved, but until now, I th- I've made some of my codes available for other people. I, I've uh, one one tool I've not mentioned earlier, earlier is uh, GeoGebra, uh, which is uh, a Mathematical software for graphing, geometry, and and uh, just general problem solving. So and this is uh, quite also community based, and you can you can share your programs. And I've shared some programs uh, uh, over there. For I've also been involved in teaching. So for for uh, I, I've made some small routines uh, in GeoGebra for students to also go and have a look so but otherwise mainly an external observer i'd say there's always a start (laughs) yeah yeah well (laughs) i i think it's uh it's great that uh, people get involved for some of them it's it's quite involved (laughs) in uh in in just for the sense of community and i uh I expect to do that eventually, but right now I'm uh, I'm not at this point.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Thanks.
2: Okay, so, what is your vision about FLOSS and its importance for the openness of science? Well,
1: as I said before, the the fact that you you can just go back and see what's uh, what the machine's doing for you, uh, I think this provides more confidence in the validity of science than uh, uh, commercial software which is all proprietary and hidden can. Of course that's a perspective. Uh, some people may disagree but I think that's one important thing. Uh, for the, There's also uh, I'd say a sense of belonging if In the science, I think uh, the uh, open software, uh, many scientists are sensitive to the question of openness and uh, many funding organizations also are are becoming more aware of the importance of uh, not only uh, uh, availability of scientific results but also accessibility and everything. So for me, uh, the, the use of, open and libre software favors that openness and that accessibility, I'd say. Uh, apart from that, I, I think I was talking about the, the sense of belonging. I, I, I mean, in science, you want to contribute to knowledge and you want people to uh, to know things, but I, you also have, a, as, a as a scientist, to uh, be open to other other people's perspective and uh, i think the the uh just it's an example of the openness that's required for for scientists J- just sharing their results sharing their uh how they get to their to their results and uh, i think it's just basically sharing
0: experiences yeah, thanks for this thoughtful answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that Floss allows you to be a better scientist in your work? Uh,
1: that's a good one. <laughs> I'd say Floss helps being a good scientist. And again, it uh, being a scientist means asking yourself questions and uh asking yourself what are the better ways to answer these questions. And Floss very often will provide a solution that's quite adaptable to to, uh, building your own solution, if you want. So in that way, I'd say that Floss allows you to be a better scientist. Also, in science, uh, usually you're going to attack problems for which solutions are unknown or somewhat unknown. And I think that, the versatility of, of open softwares in general, and the, uh, uh, maybe not the uh, upgradability, but the adaptability of these softwares and these routines, uh, I think made, make it much easier for scientists, yeah. For me personally, being a better scientist, I hope so, but in general, I think yes.
0: Yeah, and the analogy is often used is that floss is kind of like Lego bricks that you can imbricate the way you want to make what you want. Yeah, that's,
1: that, that's what I mean. I, I, I You have like the basic building blocks for going to your solutions, but the solution is not provided to you. So as a scientist, I think that's that's exactly what you need. Yeah.
2: Okay, so let us flip the coin. Do you think that using floss has negative impacts on your research?
1: using Fluss, i i, I wouldn't say on my research i would say that there are uh, negatives to using Fluss for for myself as a basically i'm an engineer so uh if i if i have to interact outside of academia i mean if i only concentrate on using latex and uh, and python there are chances that when i'm trying to communicate with what I'd call the outside world, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have challenges if I want to collaborate on uh, on editing a, a report or anything. So you have to stay uh, stay competent with uh, the the general software that other people uses. Also, I, I, personally, my <laughs> the 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 only time I'd say I've been uh, thwarted by uh, open source software is. Uh, by not realizing that, contrary to uh, most people' beliefs, some journals do not accept LaTeX documents. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, I mean, so LaTeX is great, and it, and uh, when you uh, finish up uh, an article in in LaTeX, you, chances are that you're going to be somewhat proud of it, and if you're asked to write it back in Word for publication, maybe. Maybe you're gonna consider a different journal <laughs> instead of editing your paper, yeah. But generally, I think there there are very few drawbacks. Uh, one more that I can think of is uh, sometimes for like bleeding edge uh, packages and, and, and things like that, you have to be uh, a bit more aware of updates and uh, versions. I've I've experienced uh, uh, times when I just updated a, a package and basic uh, computation changed results. Maybe not drastically but results changed enough for, for me to uh, to ask myself oh, what happened there and well it's just an update. They, they've changed a the routine for linear regression or whatever and uh, result changed a bit so you have to you have to scratch the surface a bit and uh, and see where the the change comes from and can you can you live with the difference and what are the causes? So these are you have to be a bit more aware of the development of the software possibly than in uh, in commercial softwares.
0: Yeah. If you had absolutely no proprietary software available to you, is there anything you, th- you think that you absolutely could not achieve using uh, Flux?
1: Probably nothing. I. Could not achieve, but there are things I could not achieve with a reasonable amount of work. <laughs> yeah, or time. Yeah, uh, I think in my uh, in my discipline, uh, which is uh, composite materials, uh, one of the limits in uh, in modeling is with the finite element modeling of composites. Uh, to my knowledge, there are there are good. Uh, FEM packages I, I the, there's the one from uh, Electricité de France uh, yeah, but Codastar. exactly but uh, but they don't do uh, composite materials very well yeah so and and you can code it yourself but it's quite involved otherwise uh, most things I I don't think I I would be blocked
0: uh you probably answer that question, but it's a general kind of question. We want to answer all of our uh, interviewee. Uh, what is your favorite tra- text processing tool? Uh, Word, LibreOffice, LaTeX, Markdown, uh, Emacs, Org mode, uh, something more esoteric. Well,
1: some would say that it's not a, a text editing software, but well, I, I, I prefer LaTeX. <laughs> I, I said text processing tool. Text processing tool, yeah, uh, yeah. I think LaTeX is really great for scientists basically because of the uh, it's ability to uh, edit equations really cleanly and uh, that's that's great for scientific uh, f- scientific editing and also just the, the general rendering of the document I, I think we uh, we are getting quite used to uh Ugly looking uh, text uh, uh, from the internet and from uh, word processing <laughs> in, in general but uh, I mean in uh, uh, when you start using latex at first it's uh, <laughs> you you wonder why is the software doing this and this and that in uh, to, to, to my text and placing my figures and, and after a while you realize that it's just the way that reading the text gets easier. And uh, once you once you realize how much is missing from general uh, what you see is got what what you see is what you get text processor uh, then uh, when once you build a sensitivity for this uh, I think it's hard going back. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay, so the last question for this podcast would be is there anything else you would like to share with us?
1: Well uh no, there's no uh, well just thank you for inviting me and for private, pro, uh, providing me with this opportunity to uh, to talk about FLUS and everything. So thanks.
0: Yeah. Thanks to you. Uh so thank you Laurent for your time and this interview. Uh if any of our listeners wants to reach you, uh I would like them to contact you. Well uh <laughs> they can,
1: they uh, they can just find me on the uh, École de Technologie Supérieures uh, Annuary and uh, they can they they are gonna get my address there, or uh, just through my LinkedIn page, Laurent. Uh, Laurent Cormier, uh, engineer, and uh, or ResearchGate. Yeah.
2: Okay, this will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science podcast, and I hope you enjoyed that interview. And, yeah, if you want to reach me, you can go on Twitter for DLPK.
0: Or you can reach me at underscore DBRAS or both of us at uh, Floss for Science.
2: Yeah, and our website is located at flossforscience.github.io, where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas or future episodes. Yeah, so if you have anyone in mind or a topic you are interested, please go to our GitHub page and submit an issue there and yeah, we get in contact with you. And yeah, you also can listen to our previous episode where David and I explained the aim of this podcast and what we want to do in the future.
0: We both hope that you enjoyed the show and that we will see you in our next episode. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.